Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Leaving the house today? Got everything you'll need? Keys, wallet, phone? face mask? Well, you better have that last item. In a directive issued yesterday by Governor Gavin Newsom, most Californians everywhere in the state must wear masks when in public places. It's a response to a worrying spike in coronavirus cases in many parts of California. With more about the mask order, here's KQED's Laura Clivens. The requirement includes public indoor spaces, healthcare settings, transit, and workspaces where people cannot physically distance. Masks are not required outdoors when exercising and physically distancing. We're trading shelter in place for face masks. George Rutherford is an epidemiologist at the University of California, San Francisco. He says he's glad to see Governor Gavin Newsom take this on at the state level. I think the counties have acted in good faith on this but they are faced with pretty aggressive political consequences for pushing agendas like this. Before the statewide requirement, counties determined their own guidelines on wearing masks, and some health officers faced blowback after issuing face mask orders. Orange County saw their health officer resign after being threatened following her order. Some groups are exempt from the requirement, like children under two and people with certain disabilities. The state saw its highest rate of new coronavirus cases this week, with over 4,000 diagnosed in a day. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. Cargo ports up and down the West Coast are going to be pretty quiet today. That's because workers of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union have voted to spend the day protesting police violence and racism instead of loading and unloading ships. The California Report's Nina Sparling has the story. 29 ports from San Diego to Washington State will sit idle today. With the ILWU's history of advocating for the end of police terror, and violent, we've decided to put a call out. Trent Willis is the president of IOWU Local 10 in San Francisco. He, along with the African-American Longshore Coalition, pushed for the coordinated work stops this week. And the date is no accident. Friday is June 19th, which is Juneteenth. And that's the celebration of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth celebrates the day enslaved people in Texas found out about the Emancipation Proclamation nearly two and a half years after it had passed. Willis says the work stop, demonstration against police violence, and celebration of the holiday all fit into a history of anti-racist organizing among ILWU members. UC Berkeley professor Harley Shaken says the ILWU recognized early on the need to overcome racial barriers and develop class solidarity among workers. Its early leadership was deeply invested in those issues. Bay Area local chapters were among the first to include black workers in the 1930s, a time when many unions excluded workers of color or organized based on race. The ILWU rejected that, instead actively reaching out to black community organizations and labor leaders in the Bay Area to desegregate its membership. And right from the very beginning, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union 
uh, had a very progressive social vision where civil rights, where labor rights, uh, where democratic values were all tied together. The union has demonstrated that progressive social vision many times over the years, especially in the Bay Area. Members refused to process cargo from South Africa during apartheid. They organized work stops to protest the Iraq War in 2003 and again in 2008. And now it means protesting in the wake of the killing of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police. Focusing on work stops like what the ILWU has planned for today can be particularly powerful, says Professor Shaken. There's nothing that captures the attention uh, as much as an economic disruption. They don't do this lightly and they don't use it often. Willis says the idea came from the rank-and-file members of the union. ILWU local chapters have planned their own actions. In Oakland, that means gathering at the port for a march to a celebration near City Hall. For the California Report, I'm Nina Sparling. In West Oakland, some teenagers are claiming Juneteenth for themselves. KQED's Vanessa Rancano has more. Isha Clark didn't grow up celebrating Juneteenth. I only learned about Juneteenth a few years ago. This year, the 17-year-old has big plans for the day. I was like, we need to do a black youth-led protest on Juneteenth. This is definitely a time to reclaim that holiday and to acknowledge that this is our Independence Day. It's not the 4th of July. It's that idea that led Clark to bring together friends and fellow organizers to form the group Black Youth for the People's Liberation. I would say we should do it in the Black To prepare for Juneteenth, they meet at Defremery Park in West Oakland, masks on, under the shade of a big tree stenciling signs with black power fists and the words, listen to youth. Are you guys going to paint it? Yes. Um, fight for all black lives. Can we put a shadow behind it? On Juneteenth, Clark and the others will meet here again to rally, then march through West Oakland. We're celebrating all of our ancestors and the people that came before us who fought since the day they were kidnapped, and also acknowledging that we have so much more to do. As organizers, Clark and the others know what kind of work goes into forcing change. That's partly why they're really skeptical of some of the attention on Juneteenth right now. I'm seeing um, exploitation from celebrities, from big companies. They're commodifying it. It's just, it's blank words. It's just not real to them. Like, we're worried watching our fathers and our brothers go out in the world every day. It's not like a trend. What are you going to do for your black workers to support them? What are you actually doing? These activists know what they're going to do. They say every Juneteenth should be honored with a fight for change. I'm Vanessa Rancaño, KQED News. Across California, recipients of DACA are celebrating yesterday's Supreme Court ruling that preserves the Obama-era Deferred Action Program. It gives undocumented immigrants who are brought to the U.S. as children protection from deportation. But despite the high court's decision, that protection is temporary. So the so-called dreamers are mobilizing for another goal, a permanent path to American citizenship. KQED's immigration editor Taiki Hendricks reports. Adrian Escarate says DACA allowed him to work his way through college and get a master's degree in communications. He says the past three years since the Trump administration tried to end the program have felt like a roller coaster ride. It's pretty surreal, really. Escarate lives in Santa Cruz. He's 31 now, but he was three when his family moved to the U.S. from Chile. He says the ruling creates momentum to push for a law that would allow him to get a green card. I really hope that it just 
shows once again America and folks uh, that have power to be able to pass permanent protections to be able to do that. The first time the DREAM Act was introduced in Congress was 2001. It had bipartisan support then, and today three-quarters of Americans say they support DREAMers. The bill passed the House of Representatives last year, but the Republican-controlled Senate hasn't taken it up. San Jose Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who supports legalization, says that's unlikely unless Democrats win the Senate in November. What happens in the upcoming election is going to be very important for the fate of these young people because it's so clear the difference between on this issue between the two parties. Many immigrant advocates say they're working to seize the moment, inspired by the Black Lives Matter protests demanding racial justice. By one estimate, the nation's 650,000 DACA recipients belong to families with 2.5 million citizens who can vote. In coming months, DREAMers say they'll be working to turn those voters out. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. It's a presidential election year, and there are worries that as Election Day looms, social media will become even more of a place where misinformation and crackpot conspiracy theories spread, like what happened when Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Yesterday, the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing on what companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google are doing to fight off disinformation campaigns compared to four years ago. After testimony wrapped, I talked to Congressman Adam Schiff of L.A., the chair of the committee. I think they're better prepared than they were in 2016 and probably a bit better prepared than 2018. Uh, But I don't think they're fully prepared uh, for what they're likely to encounter. Um, Unfortunately, the Russians established a good playbook uh, that they will use again, but that other countries may also use. Uh, And the tech companies still are very flat-footed when it comes to taking down inauthentic content uh, and and I think have an even more poor record when it comes to taking down just patently false information. So they still have a long way to go and not much time to go there. But uh, they can't claim that they're going in with their eyes uh, anything but wide open uh, in terms of the threat out there. One of your colleagues uh, talked about um, kind of ginning up tribalism and ginning up conflict as, as almost a, a corporate, an almost a profit-making model by these social media companies, many of them headquartered here in California. Is there something to that? Do you think that these are companies that, that still look to conflict, look to tribalism, and, and see money there? Uh, yes, I do. And uh, that actually was a common theme that ran throughout the hearing. A great many members uh, emphasized that. Um, I used my second round of questioning uh, on this issue uh, because in 2017, the last time we had these representatives before our committee, I asked them about the impact of algorithms in balkanizing and dividing Americans. Was it having that effect? And in 2017, they said, well, we think the jury is still out on that. I don't know that it was still out even in 2017, but it's certainly come back by now. And the algorithms are having that effect. Uh, And in fact, I asked the representative from Facebook Um, where in their algorithm are they prioritizing the amplification of engagement and attention-grabbing content? Is that their number one, um, uh, you know, priority? Because it it does sell advertising and it keeps eyeballs glued to their platform. Uh, This witness couldn't answer that question, but has promised to get me an answer to that question. But, you know, to the degree that these platforms continue to emphasize content that, that can go viral because it's 
fear-inducing or anger-producing, uh, it's going to continue to have a very divisive effect on our society. Obviously, I, I would assume you would agree that you, you can't reach perfection when it comes to anywhere near perfection when it comes to protecting oneself against election manipulation and disinformation campaigns. But, but what would be success to you in the coming months? I think success would be quick action by the technology companies to identify uh, and take down uh, inauthentic content. Uh, swift action to take out, uh, take down uh, false and dangerous uh, material uh, to uh, label uh, other uh, speech uh, that the independent fact checkers find uh, to be false as false, uh, and to make sure that you know, particularly when it comes to our uh, elections, that uh, they uh, do not allow the propagation and amplification of false information about absentee uh, voting. Uh, and uh, and also, I would consider it a success if they keep dangerous misinformation about the pandemic off their platforms. And finally, I can't let you go, Congressman, without asking about John Bolton's new book and its revelations. There are many in it. Um, what's your response, briefly? Well, a couple of responses. Uh, first of all, what Bolton uh, sets out in his book uh, clearly corroborates uh, everything we proved at trial, which is the president withheld hundreds of millions of dollars from an ally at war, that is Ukraine, in order to get Ukraine to help them cheat in the election. Um, but it, would, it also goes beyond that and says this was part of a pattern in practice. He also sought help from China in his re-election, uh, and uh, he consistently put his own personal interests above the national interests, all of which were points we made uh, during the course of the trial. Uh, so it's important, new, damning information, uh, very corroborative of what we proved at trial, um, but I also have to say it's very disturbing that John Bolton waited until now, until he could profit from this information in a book, uh, rather than testifying before Congress when he was asked to. Uh, his deputies did, many of them. Uh, they showed courage and patriotism that John Bolton lacked, um, and they've suffered repercussions. Uh, and I, I think uh, John Bolton did the country a real disservice by withholding what he knew. All right. Again, Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for today's The California Report, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Alice Wolfley, and Raquel Maria Dillon. Our intern is Nina Sparling, and our editor is Angela Corral. Our managing editor is Vinnie Tong, our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Happy Juneteenth. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, acknowledging the vital work of local public health departments to keep Californians safe during the pandemic, on the web at chcf.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown.
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.